Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and the 97.5 Network, ready to help you move into this holiday weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, you ready to light up some fireworks? Sure am. All right. Let's not even waste any time. Let's get right to our first guest. It's great to be joined by Super Bowl winning coach, car aficionado, and one of the most beloved people in the city of Philadelphia, Dick Vermeil. Dick, thank you so much for the time. Hey, great to be with you guys. Uh, we're, we're thrilled to get to talk to you. We're going to start talking cars, which gets back to an earlier part in your life, and then we'll get through your life story a little bit. Tell us a little bit about the Philadelphia Concord Elegance. Comes up July 17th. Tell us a little bit about it in your involvement. It's a benefit for cool cars for kids, okay? Genetic children born with genetic problems, uh, centering out of CHOP, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and Dr. Ian Krantz and his group started this campaign of raising money specifically for children with genetic disorders uh, four years ago, and they worked very hard at beside working for a living doing what they do. They try to raise money passionately for, for children that really need some help. You know, a lot of times all the charity monies go to these major problems for, you know, major diseases and diseases like childhood genetic problems get overlooked a little bit. So uh, Dr. Iron Krantz and his group are trying very hard to raise money to supplement the money they get from CHOP. And he do, they do a great job. At, and Simeon Museum is just a great place. You've been involved since the inaugural event. What's so special for you about your being able to participate? Well, my wife and I have, we have a special needs granddaughter born with genetic problems 28 years ago. Beautiful young lady and uh, doing well, thanks to Dr. Krantz and his staff. And we like to support because they support and have done such a wonderful job, not only for our family, but, but all families, you know. So it's, it's critical, you know. And, and Simeon Museum is a huge, huge, big secret in Philadelphia. It's a, one of the finest auto museums in the world and recently voted as such. And it's a little hard to find sometimes because it's located at 628 Norwich Drive. That's 628-6825 Norwich Drive. And it's over there in that airport area complex. And it's just a wonderful museum. Well, and this is a, a throwback for you. It's always fun when we learn we're going to talk to people to, to learn about their lives. You were a car guy from the start. Your dad was a mechanic in the back of the house. I saw you say you never saw him without his hands dirty, and you almost thought you were going to be a racer. Tell us about growing up and how football wasn't really the thing. Well, you know, when you grow up in a little town of 1,800 people, and I was born in my great-grandfather's home here in Calistoga, and my dad loved Calistoga, so he settled it, and he turned around and turned the garage, oh, the old building behind the house, into a garage and a way to make a living for the rest of his life, working on farm equipment and friends' equipment and winery equipment, and all these kinds of things, and I grew up in that environment. His hobby was auto racing, sprint car racing specifically, and in fact, I have restored uh, two of his old race cars, and one of them has been in the Simeon Museum from time to time, uh, a beautiful place to display it, but uh, that's how I grew up, so I grew up wanting to go in that direction, you know, but along came a football coach to the high school, 130 kids in the high school, and he, he told me halfway through the season, you know, if you wanted to, young man, you could play college football. Well, no one had ever told me that before. So that was exciting. So I went on to junior college, and then I went to San Jose State and played football there. And it sort of inspired me to become a football coach rather than a mechanic and a, a race driver. Yeah. 
thankful for that that motivation, believe me. Well, it wasn't just the race car, but you, you mentioned that your grandfather also was involved in fixing equipment related to wineries. Well, my grandfather, Vermeil, made all our Vermeil wines, you know, from the Freddie Annie Vineyard, which we still get our grapes from the Freddie Annie Vineyard, okay. And we don't own the vineyard, but we uh, pick the grapes from the Freddie Annie to make our variations of wine in the Vermeil wine business. And my great-grandfather in those days made wine from those grapes, and my brother and I grew up helping him do it. So that's what created the interest, really. And somehow you get sidetracked, and you begin <laughs> to you begin a coaching career. When did you know that coaching was going to be your thing, was going to be your passion, as well as wine and, and everything else that you did, but for the, this long period of time that coaching was going to be your passion and your, your career? Well, I, I think really it was when I, I finished college and got my master's degree, and I did my student teaching. And then got a coaching job as an assistant football coach and head track coach at Del Mar High School. And I loved so much being an assistant football coach and then the, and working with the kids and, and the fascination with the game. And then the next year I was hired as a head football coach at Hillsdale High School in San Mateo. And the, the passion for, for the game and the kids that play it just kept growing. And I finally said to myself, you know, I don't want it teach in the classroom or in the PE class. I want to coach football full time. So every time I got an opportunity for a new job, which was offered to me, I took it. That meant we moved an awful lot, but it ended up putting me in the NFL in 1976. So I don't regret any move that we made. What was it like to coach with all the people that you've coached with along your coaching career, starting from people like George or being recommended by like George Allen and people like that? humbling. It made me realize how little I knew about the game. <laughs> and I've been around so many fine coaches. You know, Bill Walsh was a personal friend that we developed a relationship at, at San Jose when he was a graduate student, when I was there as a student and player. And, you know, John Ralston, Tommy Prothrow, Chuck Knox, these guys, Jim Mora, all these people that uh, I was surrounded by and working with, they just, uh, it, I, I was like a sponge learning from all these wonderful coaches that already had experience, you know. So, you know, I'm so grateful for having had that exposure to these wonderful men. So Bill Walsh, you meet as a graduate assistant at San Jose State. He ends up getting you connected with George Allen. I, I enjoyed an anecdote you said about um, George was a fanatic for detail, and he put a sign on everybody's desk. If what you're doing now isn't making a difference in winning and losing tomorrow, why are you doing it? Can you talk about what, what you learned from George Allen and how that experience shaped you going forward? Well, I think that the, probably the most obvious thing is you evaluate every possible detail that will help you win until you find out that it doesn't help you. And then you move on to the next thing that might help you. I mean, I, one time I traveled all through the preseason studying uh, the Baltimore Colts tight end, uh, Jim Mackey, the big Hall Pro, Hall of Fame tight end, because George Allen had a hunch that he could give away some of the offensive plays. And I traveled, of the six preseason games, I traveled three or four of them uh, to see him play personally as well as come back and give a report. When I got back, I got in there and says, Coach Allen, I've done, I've done every possible study I can do. 
and uh, there's just no conclusion. And he looked me right in the face and said, you know, Coach, that's great. The conclusion is there's no conclusion. We'll move on and find something else to study. <laughs> did he Did he literally send you out on a wild goose chase? <laughs> oh, yeah. It was, he didn't think it was a wild goose chase, but the fact that after all the analysis of every little thing, it found out there was nothing we could bet on that was a, worth utilizing in a, a defensive game plan against their offense. So his statement was great the conclusion is there's no conclusion let's move on so so did you ever do that to one of your own assistants <laughs> no i really didn't i i did not uh i think we did a good job of detailing preparation but uh, i tried not to uh, get steered in a direction that probably wouldn't uh provide any opportunity improvement you know you just uh, you move on quickly so you go from the Rams to UCLA, and obviously we could talk about your coaching time there, but you, know, you were there with another coaching legend in John Wooden, and unlike previous coaches who had been there, you sort of embraced what he represented as opposed to being intimidated by it. I saw you say he could say more in fewer words than anyone you've ever been around. What was it like to be around John Wooden? Uh, you know... I had such admiration for him, but I wasn't intimidated by him. I was like, a, I, I just wanted to learn from him. So I, I very seldom walked by his office that I didn't go in if he was sitting there. But remember, he was retiring. And he used to come to our team breakfast during training camp and sit next to me at early morning breakfast because he would, he would walk the track every morning a few miles for exercise, come in, shower, and come to our training table. And he would sit next to me. And I felt very comfortable around him. In fact, I started inviting him to, in the offseason, the football staff meetings, and we would record his meetings. And we'd have 10 football coaches firing questions at him. And he had such a distinct way of answering a question precisely. <laughs> you know, and I, I, you know, I don't have that ability, maybe not as nearly as smart as he was, but he could condense things into. Uh, understanding statements that made us seem very easy and easy to utilize in your own philosophy. You know, like you... I'll, I'll give you an example. One day I was complaining to him about, we lost a couple of real great players to USC in recruiting. And he looked me right now. He says, no coach. He says, don't worry about those guys that you lost to USC. They're always going to have better players. And just make sure you do everything you possibly can to make those players that you have on your roster the best they can be and everything else will take care of itself. I never forgot that. I applied that to every player I ever coached from then on. Well, you know, that leads me to the question. You mentioned before the word preparation. You've been known for so long for the amount of preparation you do and how well your teams are prepared. When did you realize that was going to be the secret sauce to your success? Well, I, I think I learned that initially, uh, you know, through uh, John Ralston at, at Stanford. I was working for him four years. Bill Walsh was on that staff. We, you know, Jim Moore was on that staff for a while. I was around good people. And uh, I, I, I always admired the people that worked the hardest. And I always respected the fact that those that worked the hardest were the best prepared. They just weren't spinning their wheels. And I just... Uh, you know, when you get so in deeply involved in something and so passionate about something, it isn't work. 
it's research, you know, and uh, I just got tied into details and I, I didn't, I didn't like to hear people make statements that I felt if I studied that statement he made, it was probably not true. So I used to analyze a lot of things assistant coaches made to determine whether that was really a fact or just an opinion. And there's a big difference. There's a big difference. But when you detail your preparation, you start refining everything it takes to win and lose. And you also get to the point where you find out, uh, you know, there's a lot of variables that, that don't make a difference and you isolate your efforts on things that really do make a difference. And, uh, so uh, that was it. I, I think, you know, uh, recognizing when you're a young coach coming to the National Football League, you aren't going to smart, uh, outsmart the guys that are already going into the Hall of Fame, the George Allens and these guys, that, the Don Shulas, you know, and all these guys, that, the Bud Grants that were all very great coaches. And, and hey, I coached against George Allen then. You aren't going to outsmart them, but maybe you could outwork them as a young. Maybe you have more energy. Maybe you can uh, – supply more energy and motivation to your roster, your staff, or the people in the building. And maybe you can be a little more infectious in those kind of attitudes. And so that's the approach I took. Well, eventually you decide to leave UCLA and to come to our town. What was it like for you to make that decision? I understand that it, you were reluctant to make the decision and you ultimately decided to do so. Why did you decide to, to make that leap? And what was like the final impetus for you to say, that's it, it's time? Well, I talked to two head coaches in the NFL that I worked with. I talked with uh, George Allen and I talked with Chuck Knox. And they both said, listen, very seldom does anyone in the NFL call up on the phone and offer you a coaching job. It may never happen again. And, yes, you're happy at UCLA, and you've just won the Rose Bowl. But, you know, the NFL is all football. It's all football. It's not summer jobs. It's not recruiting. It's not these things. It's all football. And if you don't take this job, you may never get that kind of opportunity. And that really made sense to me. So you come in and you take the job. The Eagles had nine consecutive losing seasons before you got here. They didn't have a first-round pick until 1979. And people think you're this guy from California who looks good and doesn't necessarily fit the city. In fact, you were a blue-collar guy with a hard work ethic. Can you talk about how you were actually the perfect fit for the city and the team at the time? Well, I, I don't know if I came here as a perfect fit. Hopefully, as they learned me and I learned the community, I became a fit that would work, you know. But, you know, Philadelphia, a lot of wonderful people, and they get up every morning and go to work. They go through the grind. Uh, but, you know, in working in Philadelphia, what I learned is if, if you're honest with them, tell them the truth, admit your mistakes. Uh, you know, they do the same thing every day they go to work, and you develop a relationship. and. Uh, because of that relationship, I think it's part of the reason that we decided to stay in the Philadelphia area and continue to raise our family there. You know, we brought three teenagers with us when we came here. <laughs> and, you know, God bless Jimmy Murray. He was the, he was the lead salesman in this whole approach. And, and uh, uh, Jimmy, I remember Jimmy saying to me, you know, Coach, you, you come to Philadelphia and turn this thing around, they'll treat you like you're John Wayne. <laughs> Was he right? I never. That's what he said to me. But uh, he was definitely he was definitely right because I drove over here to the studio today and I saw you on a billboard and heard you on the radio. So I definitely know (laughs) that they haven't forgotten who you are, Coach. (laughs) 
It's amazing. Thank heavens for Jimmy Murphy. God bless you. All right, so Coach, I got to talk to you just about one specific thing. As a, as a kid who grew up in North Jersey, um, at some point I had to watch a game that's been known as the Miracle at the Meadowlands. <laughs> Uh, what was it like for you to be on that sideline, and what was going through your head when that happened? Well, first, I didn't see the initial play happen, the first part of it. I, I wish I couldn't either. I was <laughs> taking my headset off, and in fact, I was talking to Chuck Bednarik, who was standing next to me, and I was so disappointed because that's the first time the Giants would have beaten us because we beat them twice in 76, we beat them twice in 77, and we already beat them once in 78. You know, So we had a streak going, and all of a sudden they're going to beat us. And they played hard, and they'd earned the right to beat us. But all of a sudden uh, this play happens, and I look up, and I see Herman Edwards bending over, scooping up the ball, and heading toward the end zone. And, oh, my God, of course – Everything went wild. You know, everybody went wild. And, uh, and and I looked over to the far sideline and saw the New York Giants happen. And I had a little empathy, I think, for them. I said, oh, my God, how would I feel if that happened to me? My God. But anyway, it went from empathy to jubilation in about 25 seconds. Okay. And I remember after that game going in, to the hotel room, Leonard Toast was in Houston, Texan, Texas, having a heart valve replaced. That's where he had to go. Dubecky was doing heart valve replacement, and I got him. He, I was on the phone with him in the locker room, <laughs> and Leonard Toast said, "Oh my gosh, you almost ruined my heart valve operation." <laughs> <laughs> well, if if that happened, the, the Super Bowl season probably didn't help very much, too. I. I you know, everybody's talked about the Super Bowl, and I'm more curious, how did you, what happened in the Super Bowl with the Eagles and, and that career prepare you for what you would eventually experience when you came back later with St. Louis and with KC? Well, let me tell you this about the Super Bowl. Having been there twice, winning is much better, much more <laughs> But I'll tell you this, you don't appreciate a win as much as you should unless you've experienced the loss, okay? You know, there's a, whenever you lose a Super Bowl game, there's going to be defined reasons by the media, the public, the TV. They're going to have defined reasons. No one wants to buy in the fact that you just got beat and you didn't play well that day. Unlike Major League Baseball or the NBA, which you're going through now, a best-of-seven series. It's a best-of-one series. And I didn't do a good job of coaching that day. My offensive team did not played well that day and the officials did not do a good job that day you know the long broken play for that really broke our back that they uh, created uh, their offensive left tackle grabbed carl harrison who was going to sack the quarterback by the face mask and pulled him to the ground so, and it wasn't called and a, a big play resulted and it, it broke our backs but you know when you when you're minus three in turnovers in the game you have very little chance to win especially in a big game of that magnitude you know so we you know we just didn't play well but i know this it takes the same thing to go to a super bowl and lose as it does to go there and win you've got to get there and my eagle team actually did more with less to get there in five years than my ram team did in three years to get there and win you know when we got to philadelphia we didn't have first second third round picks for three years okay and in st louis we had first-round pick each year, 
second round pick each year, a third round pick each year. We had all the draft cuts, plus we had free agency. So we were able to take the old-fashioned way of building a football team, put it together with the new mechanics of, and have the advantage of the draft and free agency, and build and have a great football coaching staff. And I hired them. We were the oldest coaching staff in the NFL, okay? But we were also uh, the most experienced and, and in some ways maybe had the most wisdom. You know, Bud Carson was initially the defensive coordinator who, who coordinated my staff and taught them the schemes and, and then Peter Junta and John Bunning took it over when he retired. And then Mike Martz comes with me. And, and these kind of people, you know, Dick Corey, uh, we had one, Kenny Iman, we had wonderful coaches with a lot of experience. And it, it really helped us get over the top. But we didn't, we didn't have the same tools when we came to Philadelphia. But I, I respect, if not more, that group and how they did. Uh, and to get there and lose, and I, the, the group that got there and won, <laughs> I tell you, those kids worked. They worked hard, you and know, they remain very close to this day. And, and that was going to be my next question is, you have such a close bond with so many of your players from everywhere you've been. How do you maintain those relationships, and what makes the relationships that you have between coach and player different than what you see a lot of, t- a lot of today? Well, I learned when I was a high school coach that players win games, not coaches. You know, my uh, my uh, first year at Hillsdale High School, we lost a championship by one game, okay? I was coach of the year my first year there, okay, in the league. The next year, we win the championship with most of the same kids, okay? <laughs> the next year, we only won four games. All my great kids graduated. They went on. And that made me realize right there that players win games, not coaches. It's a coach's responsibility to provide them the opportunity, the training, the schemes, and the discipline and the motivation to take advantage of their own ability. But if they don't have the ability, you know, I got a lot smarter when Marshall Falk became my running back. (laughs) All of a sudden, you know, I got when we found out Kurt Warner could play like he could play. You know, I got a lot smarter when we drafted number one pick in the overall draft of Orlando Pace. They're all three of them are in the Hall of Fame. I got a lot smarter. So I decided I was going to dedicate a lot of time to develop the, the total player as a person as well as a player. And in doing that, you develop a relationship with people. So you, you know, go... You develop a Sorry, Kirsten. And in doing find out uh, how much joy those kind of relationships bring to you as as a leader. So you go from the gridiron to the grapevine. I've seen you say producing a good wine is like producing a good football team. You have to have patience, good people, people who know what they're doing that you can trust and are committed to doing it right. Tell us about your venture right. into the wine business. Well, you know, we started making wine as a hobby with my old Napa Valley friends. On the Edge Winery, Paul Smith, Mary Sue Frittiani, they had a little small winery, and they, I asked him about making a Vermeil Cabernet in honor of my great-grandfather, Jean-Louis Vermeil, and my dad, Jean-Louis Vermeil. And they could sell it, and I would buy it uh, and pay retail price. So we started in their little winery making 150, 200 cases a year in 1999. And, heck, we win the Super Bowl in 99. And all of a sudden, it became easy for them to sell those 150 cases or so. And we kept doing that all the way up to 2007 and some very good friends of mine in New Jersey came to me and said, you've got the process, the people, 
and some of the knowledge. Why? Let's turn that whole process into a business. And I said, okay. So 2008, we turned it all into a business. We don't own a winery, but we custom crush. From now on, we'll be custom crushing, meaning we use their facility. We use uh, mending wall winery facilities uh, led by uh, Thomas Brown, our our consulting winemaker, who's world famous, and and Andy Jones, our winemaker. And we get the grapes from the Freddie Annie Vineyard, which I have since I was born. And uh, my great-grandfather on the Italian side of my family owned a portion of the Freddie Annie Vineyard. In the next hour, I will be out there, okay, in the Freddie Annie. I'm 10 minutes away from it right as I speak to you uh, with the Freddie Annie, same family. And uh, so, I, you know, it, it was, it's been a struggle because we've, we've had earthquakes, two major forest fires. We lost all our red grapes this last year in the 2020 fire due to smoke damage. So we won't, in 2022, we won't be selling any Vermeil red wines. We'll be trying to carry over our 18s and 19s that we have left to service our club members. And we have o- over 115 club members in Philadelphia alone. All right. Well, we're, now we're going to oh, we're going to all run out to we're going to have to run out to stores to find it. Yeah. Before yeah, it's, it's gone. Not in the store. Very <laughs> little of it is in the store. You know, people making low volume, high quality wine cannot afford to sell their wine wholesale uh, to retailers. You've got to sell it direct. Like we have over 350 club members now, and it's growing. We have a tasting room in Napa. I've been doing virtual wine tastings. Uh, Joe Metacheck at PNC Bank allowed me to do a virtual tasting that he organized, and it was a big business event for us at, at Vermeer Wines. And I go on and explain the wines, the details, and, and talk football with people. And it's been fun. It's enhanced our business, and it's also enhanced our wine club. So things like that have gone. And this is the first year, 13th year, that we're in the playoffs. We're in the black for the first time. <laughs> So, you know, we're certainly not geniuses in business in the wide world, believe me. So, Coach, we've really enjoyed this interview, and we got, we got to end it with this. You have, you have made yourself so much a part of this community and the work that you're doing off of the football field. What, how important is it for you to give back to the community and to use your platform for things like the charity event, and if you could just talk about it one last time, um, and we're going to continue to promote it. Yeah, well, you know, I think it, it, it all stems from being grateful. First, grateful for the opportunity, grateful to the people that gave me the opportunity, and grateful to, for the support of the community, and uh, grateful for what Philadelphia really can provide. There, there aren't many children hospitals in the world, let alone Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. So cool cars for kids event like on Saturday, July 17th, starting at 10 o'clock for 25 bucks. You can come in there and make a contribution to helping children with genetic diseases, helping people that are really passionate about helping other people see some beautiful cars. It's an emphasis day on, on Corvettes. There's a rally that starts early that morning, and they drive all through from Chester County on into the museum. There'll be beautiful Corvettes there, but there, there, there's a world supply of beautiful old cars with video screens that that tell you the history and show you the races they were in and that it's just it's a wonderful afternoon for families and again it's a 6825 norwich avenue there in philadelphia it's really it's a little hard to find but really a worthy cause a worthy stay and very educational for young people it's a great day for mom dad and the kids is the eagles are going to have their their mascot there 
some cheerleaders there. Uh, Chicken Pizza has uh, some foods there. Uh, so, you know, well, it, it's a fun family day. We look forward to finding you there, Coach. We thank you so much for the time. Can't wait to talk to you again, and best of luck with everything you're doing. All right. Thank you for the opportunity to promote Cool Cars for Kids. Thanks, Coach. Bye-bye. Jeff, after a fun interview like that, I know it might be a challenge to get you all worked up, but I've got two words to try and do it. Chris Weber. Really? Yeah, I went good there. Job. I went that was there. A good job. Mm-hmm. Tell like me it. your feelings on Chris Weber wanting to be legitimized now at Michigan. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about this on the air. You might have to listen on the podcast because I might use a whole bunch of different words. No he bad words. To- Chris Weber needs to shut the bleep up. How's that? Thank did you I, for did bleeping I do yourself. okay? Because let's get this right. Okay, so now players can make money off of their likeness, their image, their name. Chris Weber did it when it was illegal. Whether or not he thought it was right or wrong to do when he did it in the 90s doesn't matter, Chris, because you weren't allowed to do it. You knew you weren't allowed to do it. And you cost your teammates banners because you needed to do it. And it's not like Chris Weber grew up in squalor. Okay. And he went to Michigan and he had a scholarship. And I understand that things aren't ideal when you have a scholarship, although I wish I had a scholarship. Okay. But he sat there complaining that he would walk down the street past the school bookstore and see the number four jersey for sale in there, and he couldn't afford to go to McDonald's. In the meantime, Chris Weber accepted six figures from a booster. Okay, don't, he's the last person, and remember, I'm, in case you forgot, I'm a proud you're, Michigan alumni. Yeah, you're and Mr. I'm Michigan, you, and, and you're also a guy who has been for athletes getting some type of compensation at yes, some point but chris weber is the ideal hypocrite well and i got another the one only person on that fab five team that i would say should not be saying this i got another one for you though reggie bush wants his heisman back good did he <laughs> wait i thought he never gave it back did uh, he actually physically give it back even though they said you no longer have it I, I don't know apparently he wants to be recognized and wants it back so how do you feel about that <laughs> Uh, he, he's already made his profits. I don't know what else he needs. He didn't care when, he, you know, that's the thing. None of these guys cared when they did it. They knew they were breaking the rules and they were cool with it then. And now they want a pat on the back for it. Well, what, what we, if, if what he should have done is he should have went to, he, he should have went to court and he should have filed a lawsuit and he didn't do it. Well, he just decided the easy way to do it was just take the money from a booster. We decided to get a little legal analyst analysis. I can't even speak on this show, Jeff. <laughs> about everything that happened with amateurism and the court this week. So let's go to that interview, which we recorded yesterday, and then we'll come back and talk more before the end of the show. So, Jeff, it's time to talk about NCAA amateurism or what's left of it. The door to a new era of college sports officially opened yesterday. NCAA athletes are now able to make money from business ventures without losing their eligibility. Let's bring on legal analyst Aaron Solomon to break it all down. Aaron, thanks for joining us to talk about this quick-changing landscape. It's really my pleasure to be here, and it is quick-changing. It's not changing by the day or even by the hour. It seems to change by the minute now. 
Yeah. And so I, I wanted to take a step back till we get to where we are right now, because about a week ago, uh, the court came down with a decision. Everybody's talked about should athletes be paid forever. Can you talk about the background of the Supreme Court ruling in Alston versus NCAA and what they said? Let's use our football analogy here. In Alston versus NCAA, the court totally decided to punt. All they did in that case that came down last week is say that athletes can be compensated in academic ways. So they can get computers, they can get books, and these were things that weren't even allowed before. But they totally sidestepped the issue of NIL, and that's the heart of all this. It's the name, image, and likeness issue. In other words, the athlete's ability to monetize who they are. So that's what the Supreme Court said last week, and then it's been a real kind of whirlwind since then. Yeah, and so so the next step is is all of these schools are left unless the NCAA steps in. All of these schools, every university in the country, has to figure out what this all means. Tell me what it all means and what the NCAA has done or hasn't done to fill the vacuum. So we're going to stick in chronological order. So after the Supreme Court case last week, a lot of legislature legislatures that hadn't been doing things, decided to get to work. And they said, you know what, we want to make sure that we've got legislation in place by July 1st around this NAIL issue. Now, we also had you know, states like New Jersey that solved this issue back in September, but their NIL legislation, I hope you're sitting down for this, doesn't come into effect <laughs> for five years. Having worked, having worked in New Jersey politics in the past, I'm not surprised by that. Wait, at all. Wait, so, yeah. so can we do, just to be clear, that means that most of the students who start this year, assuming they only go to school for four years, this won't even impact them. Well, again, we're sticking in chronological order. So before yeah. last night, that would have been the case. Okay. And then what happened last night, and by the way, all these colleges saw this coming. So they started hiring NIL consultants nine to 12 months ago to help them negotiate what they knew was going to be a morass. Then last night, the NCAA puts out this statement, and they basically said, this is the way I've been describing this statement all day today. The NCAA pointed in one direction and said, look, a squirrel, and then ran in the other direction. (laughs) What they said was, any athlete can engage in NIL, name, image, and likeness activities that are consistent with the law of the state where the school is located. If they are attending a school where there is no NAIL law. So New Jersey would be an example because there's no NAIL law that kicks in today. Then they can do whatever they want and they won't be violating NCAA rules. So really what the NCAA has done is create a huge mess where it's going to be a dynamic tension between the athlete and between the university as to what's okay and what's not okay. And a lot of the stuff is absolutely bound to end up in a variety of courts. So I know that the answer is basically because they're the NCAA, but why did the NCAA wait so long to do anything about this? It's not surprising. Everybody sort of anticipated that it might go in this direction. And who's going to enforce these rules? So I'll give you a little bit of a longer answer, but not much longer. I believe that the NCAA is just a dastardly organization. There's no kinder way to say it. The NCAA, to me, is on the moral par with Major League Baseball. I mean, it really is. These are just bad, bad organizations. And the NCAA has realized that, you know, this is going to be a no-win no because they're either going to lose at the Supreme Court, 
with another case or controversy that comes in front of them during the next term that starts in October, or they're going to try to gently back away as they did last night and say, no matter what goes on with NIL, NIL, we're going to stay out of it. So, so what do you do? How do you enforce it? If, so if you're, if you're an it. administrator from any school, what exactly do you tell the students and how do you enforce it so that you don't get sanctioned later on? What's happened in the past 24 hours is these schools are reaching out to current and prospective athletes because you better believe that NIL is going to be used as a recruiting tool, too. And they're saying, we're setting up with consultants and we're setting up departments and we're actually now going to help you monetize your image, also help monetize it for the university. Universities are great at doing that, right? Mm -hmm. So there was an example a few days ago. There was an awesome ESPN piece that came out before the NCAA's decision where they took a deep dive into what was going on in LSU. And earlier this week in Louisiana, the governor said no athlete is going to be allowed to, you know, advertise beer. And I was saying, okay, well, that's great. But what happens if the athlete's 21 years old? What happens if that athlete wants to give their name, image, and likeness to a roadhouse that's known for barbecue but also sells beer? Um, You've got a lot of athletes who've been announcing since last night that they're open for business. And we can certainly go through some of the names of the highest-level athletes out there. They are going to remarkably well monetize their name, image, and likeness. Before we get to the individual names, I wanted to stick on the what they can and can't do, because University of Illinois came out with their new policy, which requires athletes to show any contract to the school valued at more than $500 prior to signing, prohibits adult entertainment, sports betting, gambling, cannabis, vape products, and alcohol. How can they restrict that based on this ruling? I mean, haven't they lost the ability to restrict what these athletes can and can do with the decision if they're allowed to use their likeness? Well, because I don't have the Illinois statutes in front of me, and that's the only thing that matters. So if, for example, it would be illegal in Illinois to advertise cannabis, then it's fine that University of Illinois says that. But everything that you just read from the University of Illinois has absolutely zero legal weight, unless they're just basically saying what a statute already says. The universities can say nothing. The universities can try to say whatever they want. All of these top athletes, by the way, have also in the past week hired their own NIL consultants, and they've got lawyers and agents giving them advice as well. So that's why I'm saying all these things are heading to court. The schools are going to say, don't do it. The athletes are going to say, sorry, doing it. Well, so what what, you just mentioned lawyers and agents. So, So when you are an amateur, and I'm using air quotes, you're not supposed to have an agent per se. I guess you can have a lawyer if you have something else to do, but now you've opened that can of worms too, because they should be entitled to have lawyers that are negotiating these deals and making sure they're corrected or protected. What do you do about that now? And second, what do you do about boosters? So the NCAA solved this last night when they were running from the squirrel. Their exact words were individuals can use a professional services provider for NAL activities. So we can all define professional services provider, <laughs> you know, lawyers and consultants. So they're now allowed to have agents. They're allowed to have professional service providers. Okay. Well, you, you and I both know that what that means. <laughs> yeah, we sure do. So, explain to me, how is this disparity between state laws going to be addressed? Because then you have the unfairness of 
students in one state being able to do one thing, students in another state doing another thing. Is this Congress that has to act with the legislation that's there? Is this the NCAA that's going to come out with a policy? And do they even have the teeth to enforce a policy? Neither of the two of them are going to do a thing. There have been nine pieces of federal legislation that have either died or are in the process of dying, including one a few months ago from Cory Booker, to deal with NAL on a federal basis. Of course, it would make more sense if there was federal law that governed all this, but it's going to be up to state law. And as I said in the beginning of the broadcast, this is why this is going to be both a competitive and comparative advantage and disadvantage in recruiting. And it's not just going to be state by state. I was on um, sports radio in Syracuse the other day, and we were talking about, let's say you've got a basketball player from New York City, and they were considering somewhere like Iona or Fordham. And then Syracuse says, what are you going to go to those schools for? You think you're going to make money off your likeness and image at Fordham University? Come to Syracuse. Everyone here is a basketball god. I don't know how they now keep boosters out of this. Boosters could now sit there and say, okay, if you decide to, to sell your likeness on a book, uh, a booster can just now buy a million copies of the book, right? I mean, you can't stop them from doing this now. Well, what about you? Of course. The answer is, of course. A lot of boosters have things like car dealerships. So people have been asking me a lot the last few days, well, doesn't just this mean that only the top, top name colleges are going to get top players? Well, nope. yeah, but I mean, like, how many players, how many basketball players in Carolina are going to do a great job monetizing their name, image, and likeness? Um, it would make sense that maybe one of those players goes to a school in another community where the number one booster there owns a car dealership, and then this athlete, student athlete is selling Fords and getting some really nice money and probably some nice Fords. Remember, the NCAA included athletes, recruits, their families, and member schools. So I'm thinking there's multiple Fords involved in that deal. And instead of playing at Carolina, this person is playing at a smaller college and is the absolute number one brand at that college. Well, and remember, in the digital age, it's not just about a booster. They can go on Cameo now and sell themselves. They can strike deals as influencers on social media. I saw the the twins that struck a deal and then tweeted out a picture of them uh, on the big board in Times Square t uh, yesterday. It just, I mean, it, it just, it's a fascinating case of where these players go. I saw one athlete who said he can now actually perform with his real name and get paid to perform songs. He sings country songs, which he wasn't able to yep. be paid earlier. So does this lead to- Is he good? I guess we'll find out. Does this lead to athletes who aren't those top stars that are guaranteed, but athletes on that next level sort of staying in school longer because there's a financial incentive for them to be there where there's more of a risk coming out? Yeah, so it's going to really be a question of sport by sport. So if we look at basketball, this is not going to change the one and done. And in fact, part of, I believe, part of the pressure for the NCAA doing this comes from things like G League Ignite. Right, You've already got, as of this past year, high school kids graduating and making $100,000 a year playing on a special G League team. And if you look at the projected top eight picks in this year's NBA draft lottery, half of them are going to come from the G League Ignite. So with that, then you don't even have motivation to go to college. At least this way, 
there's motivation for someone to spend a year at Duke rather than a year with Ignite and cashing in that way as well. Otherwise, you could make $100,000 a year with Ignite, or you could go to Gonzaga and you're hopefully going to get enough calories in the day. There are still athletes, you know, today going to bed hungry at night. All right. I'm going to ask you a quiz question now. How do you now define amateur? I could never define amateur. So, I mean, I, so how, how do I define amateur? I would define amateur as someone who has an intention of participating in Olympic Games, and you have to adhere to the IOC definition of amateurism because any NCAA definition of amateurism is off the shelf. And, of course, if we want to talk about hypocrites, look at the IOC. Right? The Olympic Games are for amateurs. Um, the last time I checked, there's a lot of sports where everybody is a highly paid professional. So, so how, do, how right. does this jive? So how does this jive? What, if, if you're a college athlete and you're a swimmer at the University of Maryland and you, you use the NIL rules, does that put you in jeopardy of any amateurism as it relates to the Olympics? I believe so. And that's, again, something that the courts are going to have to solve. Right. And it's one thing like, you know, again, let's look at Spencer Rattler. Right. He's the Oklahoma football quarterback. He became a national name when he was on Netflix QB one. He doesn't have a ton of followers. He's got like, you know, 400,000 Instagram followers and like 62,000 on Twitter compared to a lot of other college athletes. That's not a ton. But his face began to become recognized when he was only in high school. So he's going to be able to easily monetize that, doing whatever he wants, whether or not he wins the Heisman. If you have someone in a sport not like football, not like Division One, but like, you know, something like rowing or tennis or whatever, you know, it could keep them in school longer, but could also jeopardize their amateur status depending on what they want to do next. So, you know, we talk, we're talking about the amateurism side of this, but the court also mentions a few times the MLB antitrust exemption. Jeff and I have covered baseball a lot. We've done a minor league show, covered the minors extensively and the conditions that those players are under. Can you talk a little bit about what they said about the antitrust exemption in this part of the ruling? It was so interesting because I follow baseball super, super closely and recently wrote a piece about the treatment of minor leaguers and how this has to change. So what they, they took a real swipe, the Supreme Court did, at Major League Baseball in this NCAA ruling. They were saying that the NCAA is fundamentally and deeply anti-competitive. And then they said, oh, and by the way, so is baseball. They were paraphrasing here, of course, but they were kind of saying it's remarkable that baseball's antitrust exemption has lasted a century. And I think they were giving a very clear warning that with the right parties and the right case, that they're going to revisit the antitrust exemption as early as the October 2021 term. And, of course, baseball has another thing going for it, which is the Save America's Pastime Act, and that's specifically the reason. That's 2016 legislation, and that's specifically the reason why minor leaguers are paid a pittance. Minor league baseball does not have to pay minimum wage and does not have to pay overtime. So you've got people in certain organizations who don't get paid for extended spring training, don't get their hotels fully covered, don't get a housing stipend, and you've got minor league players making $750 a month. Yeah, we, we, we've actually seen some of these minor leaguers probably get paid less than the concessionaires. So the question is, is who exactly would be the right party to go after Major League Baseball? 
That's such a good question. So, you know, it's funny because the NCAA path was really a circuitous way, given the fact that we're talking about NCAA athletes, to look at baseball's antitrust exemption. I also want to say it's pretty clear that it's not going to be legislators who are going to take care of the baseball antitrust exemption. They might put a stick out every once in a while, like the Republicans did around the All-Star game, but they're not going to do anything. I think it would be an aggrieved party who has, for example, played low-level minor league ball, unlike the Bryce Harpers of the world, who not only make $24.7 million a year but had a signing bonus when they began rookie ball. I think somebody like that to be able to show, because you've got to think about what do you have to do to get in front of the Supreme Court, right? You've got to be able to show specific harm. You've got to be able to show that you were injured. You've got to be able to have a specific redress. I think that there could be somebody like that who ends up coming through, and there are cases like that, I'm sure, right now, weaving their way through the district courts and the appellate courts. And the thing is, we've got to remember this, guys. This is a 6-3 conservative majority. And if we would have talked yesterday, I would have said they were a very surprising court. They're less surprising today with what they did with the Voting Act in Arizona, which, again, is pretty dastardly, in my opinion, to use that word again. But nonetheless, this has been an unpredictable court. And if they find the right party, they could absolutely tear down the antitrust exemption. And then Major League Baseball, a very, very profitable business, is in a world of hurt. But is it your impression that through that opinion, they were actually inviting or asking somebody to bring that case before them? Yes, 100%. That's what the text looked like. It said whether an antitrust violation exists necessarily depends on a careful analysis of market realities. If those market realities change, so may the legal analysis. They basically begged them to come before and challenge it. So I'll ask you my last question. What's next for both the NCAA and for baseball? Are we just now in the wild, wild west? Well, the NCAA, we're so in the wild, wild west. In fact, when you look around, all you see is money and tumbleweeds. So that's the NCAA. That's easy to deal with that one. Baseball, I'm sure, is sitting in the same kinds of meetings that the NCAA has been sitting in for about a year saying, How are we going to protect the kind of profit that we're making? And I hope that people in that baseball room are saying, why didn't we just treat the minor leaguers better before? You know, this amazing organization called Advocates for Minor League Baseball, they've been fighting for a while just for a $15,000 a year salary for minor leaguers. They're not talking about massive signing bonuses, and baseball hasn't budged on that. One other thing, guys, you know what today is, right? Today in baseball, it's a very special day. No, no, no. Bob's Bonilla Day. Should we tell people what Bobby Bonilla Day is? No, Bobby no, Bonilla no, no. Has you, you, 20 years. Jeff, Jeff, and uh, you, know you what just. The Mets paid him today? Uh, $1.2 million, $1.7 million. Yeah. So, so, so I have to tell you, I literally sent Jason, we go through this every year and Jason wakes me up in the morning with his Bobby Bonilla day stuff. And I sent him a text. I don't know if, if you and Jason talked beforehand, but I, but I literally said to him this morning in a text, if you text me anything about the Mets or any contract they had in the past, present or future, I will block you for one week for each offense. (laughs) 
And, and the best and, part of it and is you brought it up. I haven't been able to say anything yet, but the beauty of this year is the Mets and Bobby Bonilla have finally embraced Bobby Bonilla Day. Bobby Bonilla is out with a with a ad, a TV ad for a mobile phone company, and the Mets are offering a giveaway to be with Bobby Bonilla at the Mets Stadium. So for all the people who are talking about the Mets contract, they're actually getting a use out of Bobby Bonilla now. But well done, Aaron. I appreciate you going. Yeah, and, J- and Jason, it's, it's, like the, it, it's like the dam broke. Like Jason, all of a sudden, this stuff came flooding out that I made him repress for half a day. You're welcome. <laughs> and here's the thing. This is all fun. Listen, we love the Bobby Bonilla thing, but here's the reality. No, we this don't. Is actually a tweet. This is a, well, this is a tweet today from advocates for minor leaguers. They said today the Mets are paying $1.19 million to Bobby Bonilla. By the way, he's going to earn this money until he's 72 years old. But they said they still haven't agreed to pay back pay to current minor leaguers who've gone nine months without a paycheck. That's the reality that minor leaguers are living in today. Which is just unbelievable and unacceptable. And it, it will be something to watch going forward, whether the court takes something up and, and what the next steps are. Aaron, we really thank you for the time and breaking it down. Look forward to maybe talking to you again about this stuff. Anytime. It's been my pleasure, Jason and Jeff. Thanks very much. Thank you. Jeff, I don't think that could have worked out any better if I tried. I didn't even bring up Bobby Bonilla on my own, and I still got it in. Tell me how you feel. I am convinced there's a conspiracy theory that you contacted him before this interview and set the whole thing up. I honestly as, just got lucky. Because as I said to him, I did send you that text. You I did. Threatened to, I threatened to block you. I was prepared to block you if the word Bobby Bonilla or Mets or contract came up in my text. And my response was, I had thought about it, but decided mm-hmm. not to send it because I knew yeah. that's how you would feel after all the years of us doing this show and me bringing it up to you. Did you laugh when you got the text? I laughed when I got the text. I laughed more when he said, Bobby Bonilla, and your head almost exploded while we were talking about it. That was even more fun than the text. It is a shame that the minor league players are, have been going through that. Look, I understand there has to be course cost certainty in any job or any business, but we've seen some of the, what these minor league players go through. And you know, part of the journey is minor league baseball, traveling on buses, all of that stuff. But having square meals, if you saw earlier this year, I think, was it the A's or was it the Mariners where they were taking photos yeah, the meals of some of the good. food? And it was, it was absolutely disgusting. And by the way, it's not to the benefit of Major League Baseball to do that to these guys. Because as we see when we travel around and talk to athletes and teams, diet is part of what makes them elite athletes. So they should be wanting to take care of them, if not for an altruistic reason, they should want to take care of them because it actually is good for business. Jeff, last minute, uh, I am going to tomorrow take my four-year-old son, thanks to my wife for getting us tickets, to his first Phillies game. Advice for me as a father, other than don't expect to be there the whole time. Well, so the first thing is, is have fun and remember every moment of it and make sure you get him ice cream and a helmet. Okay. Because if you don't get them the ice cream and the helmet, you're not going to make it through. Definitely okay. getting them ice cream and the helmet. So get them the ice cream and the helmet. And second of all, be prepared to have to explain why there are certain words your son can't say when he hears them <laughs> at the game. He already thinks it's not nice to steal a base because it's not nice to steal from people and they should give my, it back. I took my son to an Eagles game when he was four and had oh. to leave because of the words. And he wanted to know why he couldn't say those words if people were chanting them. Last words for the week. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one. We'll talk to you next week.
Bye-bye. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work.